So some babies are more difficult than others. Our first baby, Jillian, was a difficult one, but we were new parents, so we had no idea what we were in for, right? Uh, she was the type that she was a terrible sleeper, so she'd wake up every two to three hours, and she wasn't one of those who woke up like beautiful cooing baby. She, like she woke up and she had that that baby shrill shriek that is um, just makes your skin crawl, like like it's I I don't know how people suffer through this. It's really difficult. And so after a few months of this, sleep deprivation starts setting in. You parents know. And then, then you start going a little bit crazy. More and more slowly you start going insane. It feels like it's never going to end. And then, right when it got to the point for us where we didn't think we could handle it anymore, it got worse. So from 7 to 11 p.m., we called them the witching hours, she would literally shriek for four hours every night. And we found out the only way to get her to stop shrieking was um, to hold her like this and bounce her. We used to, I love to bounce, I love to bounce, I love to. So, for four hours around, and every time it's, she stopped, we'd be like, oh, it's okay. And as soon as we'd slow down, it's, Wah! I love to bounce. And I remember one night in particular, like we had been doing this, like this is weeks on, and we're sleep deprived, we're zombies, we're like going crazy. And one night, it's like we're like three hours into this, and, 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 I slow down. I think, finally, it's 11 p.m. She's done. I stop. She starts up again. Wah! Jenny looks at me with this crazy look in her eyes and says, how long do we do this? And I said, until one of us dies. <laughs> About three weeks into it, we seriously were just completely crazy and didn't know what to do. So I found, though, one trick. If you'd layer, if I'd layer on my chest like this, so I'd move from the bouncing frame and just stop right there. So I could either stand like this or I could sit in a chair and she'd fall asleep. The, now the problem was it was perfect, but I couldn't move. <laughs> like this, the second I moved, so we thought, well, how can I get in that position and keep that position so that she can sleep and I can sleep and nobody dies, right? Nobody dies. That's the end goal. And so we thought, you know, I don't know, we talked about different options, propping up pillows, we tried different things, and finally we were like, okay, maybe we need to like go out and buy a recliner or something. Like, we didn't have any money at the time, but we were just like, we gotta try something. And so, we're going crazy, and the next week we get a call. Jenny picks it up. It's the Lazy Boy store. And they said, someone's come into the store and put down $800 for you to buy any recliner you want. Jenny's like, who is it? Like they wish to remain anonymous. One of our close friends had been listening in and decided to not ask, but just do this for us. Just drop this on us. And I know we had been suffering and sleep deprived and probably cried over anything at that moment. But when we found out that somebody dropped this unexpected gift of grace on us, that someone shared in our suffering... Like, we were overwhelmed. It was a place of grace and joy and deep gratitude, and we didn't even know who it was from. When we come to the text, last week we talked about a place that looks a lot like this. We talked about, Paul said that there's a place that 
Christians should live, and it feels a lot like this, that this unexpected gift of grace that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, should allow us to live in this place, to view life as gift, whatever the circumstances. That God has dropped on us something so amazing, something so unexpected, that you should just be able to breathe in grace. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a place of gift and grace and joy and gratitude. And, and I pointed out last week, and I'm going to, I heard I did a really, really bad job drawing, so I'm going to try again. Um, I, I, the, the, in translation, it's easy to read over this and completely miss that Paul is actually laying something out for us here. That in, in the Greek, there's something really, really obvious going on that when he talks about this gift and this grace and this joy, that this is all connected for him. That, that for the Apostle Paul, we have received a gift. Beautiful gift. And in Greek, that's the word karen, karen. But that gift should produce in us a big, fat response. These are tears of joy right here. Oh, that's so nice. And in English, we call this grace. In Greek, charis, karen, charis. And it should also produce in us this experience that we can rejoice in the Lord always. Kara, or joy. So the gift produces in us this, it's a gift of grace, and it's this joy, kara, and when all of that comes together, it wells up in this deep, deep thing we call thankfulness of a good gift. You, good in Greek, charist. Our symbol in the Christian faith is the Eucharist itself. It literally means good gift or gratitude. So this is gratitude. All right, you can just assume that. So, so in this though, Paul, he uses these words and he throws them out so that when, when you read this in Greek, you see this circle developing. He, the, the, the Christians, where do Christians live? They live in this realm right here. It's this place between gift and grace and joy and gratitude, this deep gratitude that can't be taken from you. And today, when the Apostle Paul says, when we talk about this space in in here, this place where Christians are supposed to live in response to the goodness of God, there's a word here. It's being content. That whatever the circumstances, because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of what God has done, because of the love of God, because the promises we have, because of the grace we've experienced, that we can live in joy always, that we can know a deep gratitude and that we can be content. And that is a place where I desperately want to live. Text for today is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Let me remind you where this text was, comes from. Um, This text was not written by a man wearing skinny jeans and a superfluous scarf sitting in Starbucks. All right, you get it? This this is a man who's in prison, death sentence, potentially. Like he thinks he might be executed. Let me remind you, the Roman prison system did not have luxuries like food and clothing. 
Like if other people, if his friends and family did not take care of him, he would literally die from exposure, starvation. And so he's sitting there and everyone's abandoned him except Timothy. And he's just surviving and in that state, miserable, going crazy, doesn't know if he can bear it anymore. Our boy Epaphroditus shows up with a big pile of money and a message. The Philippian church is with you. He just dumps this on him, this gift of grace. And as you read through Paul's letter, he starts, this is where this starts the whole thing of this gift and this joy and this grace and this gratitude. And he's living and this is the phone call from the lazy boy store, okay? That's what Epaphroditus' gift is. Paul's overwhelmed with gratitude, joy. He's He's this wonderful emotional mess that we've just read through over the last 15 weeks. And so now he's going to sit down in the book of Philippians. He's sitting down to write a thank you letter. Dear Epaphroditus and friends, thank you. That's what the book of Philippians is. You'll notice, though, that in this letter, up to this letter, how how many weeks have we been in this? Fifteen weeks. This is the 16th and final week of this series. The Apostle Paul has taken a long time to get to the thank you. Like, he could have just started out, hey, thanks so much for the money and means so much. But he doesn't. For some reason, when Paul tries to spit it out, it's like he's been trying to get there and he can't. He tries to get there and he can't. Like, I want to say thank you, but... And then if you read through this passage, what I just read through, you see him going back and forth, like, thank you so much, but I didn't really need it, but thank you. And oh, something really weird is going on here. So let's let's check this out. It starts out like this. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Now, this is a good start. Hey, I'm so excited that you renewed your concern for me. And this, Paul is literally using flowery language here. The word renewed there is the word to bloom again. Paul's like, I'm in this jail cell, and it's like winter, like it's never going to end. Like this last winter, it's terrible. But suddenly Epaphroditus shows up and I see this gift out of nowhere, unexpected, bloom in front of me. And this is the part where after he says that, what should he say next? He should say, man, you renewed your concern for me. Now he's supposed to say, and thank you so much for the money. But watch this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I mean, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances Have you ever received a gift that you really didn't want? Uh, My grandmother loved to give me clothes. And in my teen years, this is the um, mid to early 90s, which was awesome at so many levels. Um, Every year, she would she would go out and buy me a really expensive sweater. And this sounds awesome. I mean, this is really nice. It's really thoughtful. Thank you, Grandma. But the thing is, is she would buy me one of those sweaters that had like these patches of leather and zippers all over it. It was the same kind worn by guys like Tupac and Dr. Dre. Now, you get this and you're like, wow, this is super nice, Grandma. Like, man, this is the best Dr. Dre sweater I've ever seen. But have you ever looked at me? I mean, I've been wearing heavily starched shirts since I was 12. (laughs) Like, I just look ridiculous when I dress like a rapper. Ridiculous. And so you open it up, and what do you say when Grandma gets you a Dr. Dre sweater? You say, thank you. This is really something. 
And this, this is what this text feels like. Like the Apostle Paul is just getting awkward here saying, I'm not saying this because I'm in need because I really don't need your gift. In verse 17, he rewrites this. Not that I desire your gift. Like I really don't even want it. And you're just like, didn't your mom ever just teach you to say thank you? But Paul seems to be going to great lengths to say two things. One, I love your gift and I'm grateful and I love you and I'm in a place of joy and contentment and gratitude like I'm in this place. But I also need you to know something. It has nothing to do with your money. The contentment and money have nothing to do with one another. I'm not quite sure why Paul is making such a big deal of this, but watch this. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. In need is literally to be humbled, to be abased, to have plenty is like to abound. Like Paul, if you remember, early in his life, he was one of the top Jewish lawyers in the world. Like that man knew what it was like to have plenty. Like he knew wealth, he knew luxury, and he knew what it was like to be in need. He had been beaten, left for dead, penniless, not knowing where the next meal was coming from. He knew both of those. But he's saying, having been through those, what you need to know is that my contentment, my joy, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is a, it's literally, I have been initiated into the secret of being content or self-sufficient. Like he uses language that it sounds like it's right out of like some secret society. Like I've been initiated. Like it's a, it's a fraternity or something. Like seriously, he's using this language. It sounds like he pledged a fraternity. They sent him off to jail for a few years and now he's made it. He's made it through the hazing. Whatever it is, he's been initiated into this. And he's a full-fledged member of this thing called being content, which I want you to just take a moment and try to define contentment. What do you think the Apostle Paul means by being content? Contentment is one of those things that if I don't ask you what it is, you know exactly what it is. But as soon as I ask you, you're like, well, you know, it's like, um, like, well, it's when sometimes and I have no idea. What does it mean to be content in this sense? The secret of being content that has nothing to do with whether you're fed or not, have clothing or not. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple minutes and we're going to break into this, the secret of being content. And we're going to start with clearing away what contentment, what the Apostle Paul cannot mean by contentment. Whatever he means by being content, he does not mean this. Being content cannot mean having everything you want, at least not in material sense. Let me remind you, I've reminded you of this, oh, every couple of months I try. We live in the wealthiest county and one of the wealthiest states in the wealthiest country in the world and the wealthiest era of human history ever. Now look around. Look at your friends. Look at your coworkers. Look at your neighbors. Are we content? May I suggest to you that if we are not content, of all the people on the earth, of all the time periods on the earth, if we are not content with what we have, then 
money and being content must have nothing to do with each other. Are we content? Or are we always looking for that next job? Because, you know, this job just is limiting and it's not fulfilling me. But that next job, once I get that next job, then it will be different. Are we always looking for that next thing? You know, this house is limited, or this car, or this phone. You know, this is it. 5S, There's the, the, the 6S is out now. It's so much better, so much bigger. Are we content with our spouse? Or do we think the next one will make our lives better? If I only had that, if I only did that, if I'd only been there, if I only saved this much money, if I only paid off that debt, if, 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 then you'd be content? First Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, Godliness with contentment is great gain, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It goes on to say this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Not only does money not buy you contentment, the Apostle Paul is saying that it can ruin the contentment that you do have. So Jenny and I, uh, when we were first married, we were poor. By poor, I mean poor. Like our cars were like these mangled messes that my, my, the seat in my car was literally propped up with a cinder block and there was a hole in my floor and the roof was caving in and it was awesome. And the muffler, I literally tied it in place. And, uh, and we had like, we had nothing. Not, like food wise, we, we lived on ramen noodles and spaghetti because that's what we could afford. And the only thing that made ends meet in our life was the fact that we lived in this tiny little back house on this big multi-million dollar property. So we lived in 400 square feet in this tiny little cabana and we helped take care of the property and got to live there for free and that was our life. But here's the thing. We were first married and we had fun. Like we were oblivious to the fact that we drove terrible cars and had to work really hard and had no money and ate only ramen noodles and spaghetti. It didn't matter. We loved it. We, we lived in there. Joy, gratitude grace. People in the main house, in contrast, they lived in a giant house, a sprawling house, a house that at one time was literally a a cover story of better homes and gardens. And they ate the best food and they drove luxury cars. The man actually had a fully restored 1966 Shelby Cobra. Men, if that is not satisfying, I don't know what could be. And, uh, And here's the thing, though. They had everything you could imagine and they weren't happy. And I remember one night in particular, our houses faced each other. Like ours is right across from the pool. So their, um, their place, as they looked out their back window, the kitchen window, it looked right into our dining room, which is really, there's just like two rooms in the whole house. So you get the idea. So we were sitting there one night and we were eating dinner and we were laughing and we were like eating another thing of ramen noodles or spaghetti or something. And, and we were laughing and having so much fun. And at that moment, my heart felt so full, so full of gratitude and grace and joy. And we were living in this moment and this was, it was like a party, a celebration for us right there. And I remember looking up and seeing the owner of the house look out the window 
and looking completely distraught and just staring at us, watching us and our joy while they lived miserably in their mansion. See, money can't buy contentment. The other thing that is clear from this text is being content can't mean being stoic. Do you guys know what stoic means? Okay, so to be stoic is to be indifferent or unaffected by pleasure and pain. It's an attempt to find contentment by being so calloused or aloof that no one can hurt you, no one can affect you. So, so let, let me illustrate this for you. To be stoic is John Wayne. I don't know if you know John Wayne. John Wayne, brilliant. But let me, let me introduce him to you. This is John Wayne. This is John Wayne happy. This is John Wayne sad. This is John Wayne stressed out. This is John Wayne in love. This is John Wayne. Any questions? Like there's no difference. He, he's the same thing because, because he is the 1950s picture of a real man, of American manliness. And a real man doesn't show emotion. A real man doesn't get all googly and all emotional on that roller coaster. A real man doesn't say, I love you or hug his children. A real man doesn't cry. A real man is stoic, unchanged by the world. Thankfully, I feel like we've moved beyond this as a culture. But that's kind of the definition of a stoic. But there's another definition of a stoic, one that I think more aptly applies to this text. And, and this little gem right here, I stumbled upon it when I was uh, in college. And this is written by a man named Marcus Aurelius. He's a Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher. And this is called The Meditations. And I love this book. I stumbled upon this book and I would take this book everywhere with me. I've even got little notes in this book. And uh, I would read and reread this book. I actually got to a point where I, I memorized sections of this book. What a solace to banish and efface every tumultuous thought and straightway be lapped in calm. I have no idea what it means. But doesn't that sound great? What a solace to banish in a face. Like, it was just great words. So here's the thing. This guy was a stoic philosopher. And, and I connected deeply because Aurelius was saying that that drive you feel, that you always have to keep going, have to have more, have to achieve. He says you can overcome it. You can get around it. That you can find real rest in the world. That there's a way to be content in any and every situation. And I was like, any and every situation, I want that. The exact same language that the Apostle Paul would use. I want to be content in any and every situation. And so his, his secret, to greatly oversimplify, was that if you just need to recognize that you really can't change anything. Don't get too worked up if anything's too good or too bad. You just need to accept it because it is what it is. Here's the question. The Apostle Paul is writing to Philippi where, where Stoic philosophy was popular. He, he, he's, he's in a world where this type of thing makes sense. He's using the exact same language. Is Paul a Stoic? Is he saying that being the secret of being content is just accepting everything as it is? To which I hope you're thinking, no! That is not what he's saying, and that is not even Christian. First, just anecdotally, 
the Apostle Paul, if he was a Stoic, he was like the worst Stoic ever. He's like an emotional roller coaster. He's a complete mess. Like John Wayne would not approve of what he wrote in Philippians. But more importantly, the Apostle Paul's contentment is not based on just accepting the world as it, as it is. If there's anything, Paul is longing for the world to be changed, to be transformed. He's yearning. He's, he can't wait. But he can be content in any and every situation because he knows that ultimately it's not dependent on him or anything in creation. It's dependent on verse 13. I have learned the secret of being content that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 is possibly the most misquoted and misused Bible verse in in the whole of scriptures. In King James Version it says this, I can do all things, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So I weigh 150 pounds and have like a three-inch vertical, but I can do all things. If I just claim this, I could be a professional athlete. No. Like I work in the mail, mail room and have a GED, but, but if I just claim this, I can do all things. I could be a billionaire CEO. I could be Bill Gates. Probably not. You see, Paul is not saying that you can do anything you want. He's saying you can do all of this. And what is all of this? He says you can suffer and be content in Christ. And you can have wealth and be content in Christ. That that if you are, if I am that billionaire CEO, that I can do that. I Through Christ, I can be in that position and still learn how to live in this world. Because my contentment is not based upon my money or success. It's based on Christ. And if I am working in the mailroom and have a GED and make minimum wage and don't know how I'm going to pay the bills that month and I'm suffering, I can do that too. You know why? Because my failure and my poverty do not affect this. This comes not from that, but from Christ alone. Through Christ, I can own things without them owning me. Through Christ, I can suffer and meet Christ in it. Christ has done something that nothing in the world can undo, something that nothing in this world can compare to. So so it doesn't matter. There's no achievement. There's no gadget. There's no uh, rank on the ladder. There's no corner office. There's nothing that will compare in Paul's book to what Christ has in store for him that On the other side, there's no evil person that can take away from you. There's nothing that anyone can take away from you what Christ has given to you. There's nothing you can achieve that will compare. And there's nothing that anyone can take away from you that can in any way diminish the gift of Christ. Paul puts it this way. For I'm convinced that nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus in our, God, our Lord, that nothing in this world can undo what Christ has done for you. When you learn to live in that truth, that nothing compares and no one can take away from that, when you learn to sink your roots deep in that, it's going to draw you again 
over and over and over again to the center of this, to grace, to joy, to deep gratitude over the gift that is life through Jesus Christ. That this place of gift and grace and joy and gratitude, this place of contentment, that that's the picture that Paul's going to draw for us of what contentment is. It has nothing to do with all the other things in life and has everything to do with keeping Christ at the center. It's learning to trust Christ, that Christ is better than anything else this world can offer, that the scriptures put it this way. It's believing better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's believing that to live is Christ, but I'd rather die because to die is gain. To die is to be with Christ. It's believing that nothing compares to Jesus Christ, that you can trust him with your hurt and your failures and suffering, that that he would say in Romans chapter 8, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, that whatever you're suffering on this side does not compare to what Christ is ultimately going to do. It's saying that I want to know him. So so chapter 3, what does he say? I want to know him. And the power of his rising, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That I want to suffer like Christ. Why do you want to suffer, Paul? So that I can be more like him? So that I can have him? I just want to know him. I want to know him. That there's nothing, suffering, good or bad, that can take Christ away from him. So this, I don't know if this helps at all for you. I see this, and I want this. But when I go out and I live just a normal life and just talk to normal people and face the daily things of the world, this seems like great spiritual talk to me. And how we actually live there is a whole nother matter. Like, I can sit in here and I can see this. I can line it out on the Greek and I can draw a picture for you that's really good. And I can show you pictures of John Wayne and we can all be like, yes, that's what contentment is. It's it's living in the middle of this gift and joy and grace and gratitude. And it all has to do with what Jesus Christ did for me. And I believe that. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know how to live that. So let me suggest to you two ways to actually try and live in the middle of this. And the first way is um, is to do nothing. If you are a believer, if you are someone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God's not giving up on you. And if you do nothing, he's going to allow life to beat the tar out of you. Life will fail you. It's just a matter of time. So it might be in the, in the category of success. Maybe you think, oh, I'll be really, really happy. I'll find this contentment if I just have that corner office and that wife and that car and that house and, and my kids go to those schools. And, and what's going to happen is if you, if you follow that far enough, you're eventually going to get to the top and realize that's it. And it fails you. Or more likely, your spouse will leave you. You'll go through bankruptcy you'll get the call from the doctor that it's cancer and it's not treatable. And life will fail you on that end. Either way, God will use these things. God has a way of forcing you to stop looking for contentment in all those things and look only to Christ for your contentment. 
To be frank, this is probably the surest way to get there. Like when I think through the people who really, really live this out, the people that I know, they're the people who've really, really, really suffered. So the second way, hopefully a way that we will consider is is what the Apostle says, I've learned to be content. Like I've been initiated in this. Like I've learned to be content that that here here's Something terrible happens to you. And if you're like me, when that happens, what do you do? Cry, whine, blame God, and pout. (laughs) Right? That's what happens to you. You're like, no, this is terrible. And then what happens? So if you wait a little while and you keep following God, keep walking with God, and that you realize a little while later, you look back and you say, you know what? That terrible, terrible thing that happened in my life, God actually used that to grow me, to heal me, to mature me, to reach this person, to bless me, to bless others. That's weird. And then the next time something terrible happens, you're like, no, this is awful. I, I can't believe God did this to me. And you, you pout and you whine, and, but you think, but maybe, maybe he's doing something. And then the next time something terrible happens, you say, maybe. God's actually working in this. And then the next time, and the next time till you get over here, we actually kind of look forward to it. Like you're like, you say crazy things like the Apostle Paul. He gets beaten and thrown in prison. What does he do? About midnight, he starts worshiping and praising. Like, like you, you do crazy things like saying rejoice in the Lord always. That in your suffering, you say God is in this. He's doing something that in this terrible thing right now in this moment, I can trust him. I can trust him in that. And that even in the most terrible things, you learn the secret of being content. That God's up to something even in this. If you think through this, it's from what happens over here the first time something happens to what happens over here What's changed? It's not your life. Terrible things are still happening. But what's changed is your perspective. You're learning to see the world. You're learning to see your experiences. You're learning to see life through the eyes of Christ. It's a word that Paul uses over and over and over again in Philippians. It's called phreneo. That when we look at the world through the eyes of Christ... That we can see that God is up to things in the best of moments and in the worst of moments. That we can learn to live be, that everything that God puts in your life is a gift from God, from a loving God who's overseeing you, who loves you, that even in the bad things, he wants to use that. That in the bad things, he's working in grace and joy. And in the end, in Eucharist, this deep gratitude. So you know how the, the end of the Philippians goes, the very last line, Paul's going through and he says, and I want to tell you, um, hey, this person says hi and this person says hi, and, and by the way, those in Caesar's household greet you. It's like a big wink right there, if you could wink through the text. You know what that is? It's like this terrible, terrible thing happened where I've been thrown in prison. You know how God's used that wonderful, awesome, terrible thing? That now God has taken the gospel all the way to the palace. That those in Caesar's household are now believers, 
are now trusting Christ because of the terrible thing that happened to me. That in my imprisonment, God is up to something. And when you learn to see things that way, whether things go great or things go terrible, you can be sure that God is up to something. And that, my friends, is what the Apostle Paul calls contentment. Let's pray.